This is Ben Weingarten for Encounter Books, and today I'm joined by Naomi Schaefer-Riley, author of the new book, The New Trail of Tears, How Washington is Destroying American Indians. Naomi is a weekly columnist for the New York Post and former Wall Street Journal editor and writer. Naomi, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's, let's start right here. What do the American people need to know about the state of Native Americans today? Well, it's a pretty deplorable situation. Uh, Native Americans are the most impoverished racial or ethnic group in the country. Uh, They have the highest rate of gang violence. Uh, Native American women are twice as likely to be sexually assaulted. Um, They have among the highest crime rates. Uh, Native American children are almost twice as likely to suffer from abuse. Um, uh, the suicide rates are astronomical. And if you go on any reservation in the American West, a lot of times what you will find is a third world country in the middle of the wealthiest nation on earth. Now, you describe a condition that many on the left would argue could be ameliorated by all manner of government programs and subsidies and the like. And yet what you document in your book is that for decades... Native Americans have been lavished with a variety of, of programs and funds as well, and the results have been abysmal, analogous in some ways to the war on poverty in this country. Speak a little bit to that. So we have absolutely sent billions upon billions of dollars to these reservations, and unfortunately, a lot of it just sort of stays in Washington in the bureaucracy that's known as the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, Indians like to call it bossing Indians around instead of the the other acronym for the BIA. Um, And what happens is now there's actually one BIA staff member for every hundred American Indians. Um, so they're basically just tasked with micromanaging the lives of American Indians. Um, there is also a lot of corruption that goes on uh, both at the BIA and in tribal governments. So a lot of the money gets sucked up there. But primarily what's happened is that we have kept sending money there, but we haven't actually created any kind of economic development. Most of these reservations have no private sector. Most of the jobs are either with the federal government or the tribal government. Um, If you look, for instance, at the Northern Cheyenne Reservation in Montana, the unemployment rate is 78%. Basically, you just have to wait for someone to die in order to get a job. And so I want to, you know, of course, talk a little bit about the causes of this, you know, how it is that we have come to the point where there's no private sector on these reservations. And that is really, uh, you know, the fault of Washington at this point. Um, But the reservations, this is something that I think few people really understand what a reservation is. It means that the federal government is holding the land in trust for Indians. The only other people, by the way, that we hold things in trust for our children and the mentally incompetent. So it's pretty shameful that in the 21st century, that's how we treat American Indians. Um, But that's the case. And so the result is that American Indians really don't own the property on the reservations. They can't buy it and sell it among themselves without the approval of an official in Washington. They can't uh, get a mortgage to buy a house, for instance, because they don't own the land, so the bank would never give them a mortgage. Um, they can't get equity to, for instance, start a business. A lot of Americans, if they wanted to start up a small business, would immediately go take out a second mortgage or a home equity loan to get capital that way. And American Indians, unfortunately, do not have that kind of access. 
Yeah, so basically the, the system you describe, and, and you have a chapter about this very topic in the book, is one in which there are no private property rights. So without private property rights, there is no commerce. There is no economic activity. And, and there's a quote that you have in the book from, I think, one of the subjects that you interviewed. And the quote is, we are the highest regulated race in the world. Explain the thicket of regulations that squelches any and all potential economic activity. So one morning, I was on the Pine Ridge Reservation. I woke up in my motel, and I had to drive to visit a school that was 40 miles away. The diner that was attached to the motel was closed, and I thought, oh, well, I'll just go drive to the school and get a cup of coffee. I drove 40 miles and did not find a single enterprise that would sell a cup of coffee. There was no restaurants, no diners, no convenience stores. There is nowhere else in America you could drive 40 miles on a highway without finding a cup of coffee. And I asked someone about this, and they explained to me that there actually used to be a coffee shop next to the motel, but the federal government, the BIA officials, had actually prevented the owners of the coffee shop from putting up a sign on the road directing people to the coffee shop. And so it had to close because no one knew there was a coffee shop there. So just to just so you understand the kind of level of micromanagement, um, the person who I interviewed who, who gave me that quote who said we are the most overregulated race on the planet was actually talking a lot about natural resource development. And this is something where Indians really, a lot of the reservation land is on uh, land that's rich with coal that could be used for fracking or any number of other natural resource development projects. Um, and he was explaining to me that if he just went a few steps off the reservation, you know, he could get an application for a permit to drill pretty easily in a few steps and it would cost him, you know, a few dollars. On the reservation, it was something like 35 steps, and it was going to cost him thousands of dollars. So between the BIA and the Environmental Protection Agency, his, his hands were tied. It, it became not worth it to actually engage in any of these economic development projects. Most of our listeners are likely very familiar with the just disproportionate and, and frankly, heartbreaking rates of crime, drug abuse, alcoholism, and the like in the Native American community today. And you describe in your book that one and two generations ago, Native Americans were better educated and didn't seem to have these same basic cultural problems. So how has there been this degradation over the last 25, 50 years in the community? Well, it's an interesting combination of factors. Um, I think that certainly one thing that's happened is all of the the economic devastation and, and the culture of dependency that we have created are very similar to what you see in our inner cities. I mean, what you see is uh, you know, very few kids are growing up in two-parent households. Um, many of the kids are actually a surprising number are wards of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, meaning that they have no adult in their lives who can really take care of them. It's shocking. Um, and then I think beyond that, in terms of the crime, what you have is also a, a problem of a, a legal problem. You have law enforcement um, where you have overlapping jurisdictions. Um, there's uh, often difficulty with law enforcement because federal officials do not want to step on the toes of tribal officials. There are also problems I've seen with um, the court system as well. It's very hard to prosecute crime on the reservation. You People would tell me that they regularly heard of cases where judges 
were presiding over cases where their family members were one of the parties. Um, so I think that there are, uh, there's, there's corruption, there is some incompetence, but I think from the perspective of an outsider, what's so shocking is that American Indians are American citizens, and I keep I keep telling this to people. I think a lot of people are unaware of that, and they're not getting the same kind of protections, the same kind of rights and freedoms that the rest of us are getting. So their lives are are being you know determined and circumscribed by this amazing you know rate of crime and deprivation, and part of it is because the federal government does not want to step in and say. Uh, you know, wait a minute, maybe the tribal officials are not doing a good job, and it's our job to make sure that children are not amused, that women are not sexually assaulted, because they're American citizens. You've described a system in which the foundations for economic activity are limited and that there's no property, private property rights, you're lacking in courts, there's no law enforcement or there are jurisdictional issues with respect to law enforcement. And so you have all of these issues culturally which lead to economic issues. And then the one area where there is actual economic growth, quote unquote, is basically in rent seeking activity, which in and of itself is a kind of dependency. So speak to where there actually is, quote unquote, growth in reservations in this country. So what I like to explain to people is that we have offered Indians, in return for sort of giving up their rights and freedoms, what we've offered them is a kind of loophole economy. We've said, okay, here are some tax and regulatory advantages that we will give you over your neighbors so that you can make some money. And so many, many listeners will be familiar with the idea that, you know, Indians used to be able to sell uh, cigarettes tax-free or liquor tax-free. Um, now the federal government has determined that even if your state does not allow the sale of marijuana, that Indian reservations can grow and sell marijuana. Um, needless to say, these are all the industries that many of us would love to have in our backyards, you know, liquor, <laughs> liquor, cigarettes, and marijuana. Um, and so what has happened in each of these cases is that the Indians have, you know, sort of opened up businesses. They've said, oh, great, we can have convenience stores where we make these huge profits off of cigarettes um, because people will come here and they'll buy their cigarettes and we won't charge them tax, so, so we will have this advantage. And then the federal government turns around and says a few years later, actually, you can't do that anymore. Actually, we're going to crack down and the, you, know, you, you can't get away with selling tax-free cigarettes anymore. And so a similar thing has happened with casino gambling. Um, for many years, uh, the, the rule was, uh, even if your state did not allow for casino gambling, Indians could own casinos. So they had this kind of advantage over their neighbors. But then what happened was, of course, many state governments realized how much money there was to be made off of these enterprises and how much they could get from not only Indian tribes uh, to open these things, but also non-Indians. And so they started legalizing casino gambling for everyone. And so now the casino revenues have started to dry up. And what I see, you know, what you see is this amazing cycle that happens. You know, they say, okay, fine, this is where we have our advantage. We're gonna, uh, as one, one tribal leader put it to me, he called it their sovereign advantage. So, you know, this is where we have our advantage. We're going to use it. And then the federal government turns around and says, oh, actually, we're going to close this loophole. So the effect is really problematic because I think it's deeply disheartening. You have, you know, kind of an, a, a period of economic devastation while they have to switch from one, uh, you know, area of the loophole economy to the other. And then even given all that, the casino revenues have really not produced the kind of improved standard of living that you would like to see. Um, you know, in some ways, because what happens is the casino revenues are distributed in annuities, they're just like 
kind of winning the lottery. Um, on the Seneca Territory in upstate New York, when you turn 21, um, somebody sends you a check for $30,000. You've previously not had much of an education. You have no idea how to save or invest that money. And the truth is that many tribal officials told me people just blow it. They, they blow it on a new truck, you know, best case scenario. But a lot of times it's also drugs or alcohol. And that's actually not it's not helping them out of the cultural dependency because, again, those annuities are not money they've earned. It's just money that they happen to get in the mail because they're a member of the tribe. Yeah, and, and, and you speak to, with respect to those annuities, uh, certain schools in an area called Wounded Knee where basically there are actually lock-ins at schools when the government checks go out. I explain that because I think that was one of the more horrifying things in your book. So this this isn't uh, related to the casinos, but this is this is just sort of the welfare checks and the checks that go out to to supposedly help Indians out of poverty. But so I was at this school and the principal was taking me around to different classrooms and we were watching at one point, you know, these five year olds playing, and um, and she just said to me, "Oh yes, in one weekend a month, the kids stay here uh, for lock in." And I said, "What is that? What have they done wrong?" And she said, "Oh no no no, we have to keep them here to protect." Them because that's the weekend that their parents receive their checks from the government um, and they often get drunk and abuse their children. And it's amazing to me the, the way that the sort of clock, the, the calendar, the timing of everybody on the Indian reservation kind of lived by this knowing when the government checks went out. They know that the kids would be really hungry toward the end of the month. They had to give them more food at school because all the money from the food stamps would be gone by that point. Um, they, they, they knew that these checks, when the first checks first came, there would be, you know, this huge amount of, you know, celebration and partying and drinking. And, and so th these kids are just, are suffering to an enormous extent be, and everybody knows, you know, what is what what what's going on here. Everybody realizes it, it didn't it didn't take some you know white academic who to come on the reservation and say, oh, you know, let me study this for a while and figure out you know exactly what weekend this is going on. Tribal officials are well aware of exactly why and when this happens. And since we're on the topic of schools, you survey uh, the, the largely failed school districts. Uh, in Native American reservations, but you also come across a couple of success stories, and one of them is the story of Ben Chavis, although he was ultimately drummed out in spite of having a successful school uh, in a non-Native American area. Chavis speaks to something that reminded me of both your husband's book, uh, Please Stop Helping Us, and also Thomas Sowell's Black Rednecks and White Liberals, where he talks about the fact that he is creating an institution which strives to follow those cultures that have been successful when they've immigrated to the states, be it Jews, Chinese, the like. What are the lessons of Ben Chavis's story? So Ben Chavis is a Lumbee Indian, and he is originally from North Carolina. And when I visited him, he was actually, it was after he had already uh, been drummed out of the uh, charter school that was so successful in Oakland, California. And he was in North Carolina running what he called a math camp for the kids there. Um, they would go for a few weeks, uh, you know, eight hours a day uh, to his farm. 
and basically be drilled in math. And over the course of a few weeks, they would get an entire year of math curriculum. This was kind of a no-frills education. They were doing flashcards. Um, there were there were no computers. You know, when they took a break from their you know their classroom studies, they were doing laps around the farm. Um, but I think you know what what Ben sort of said was you know these kids need to have the kind of uh, attitudes, as you said that immigrants to this country have. And I and throughout the book, I sort of kept thinking about the differences between American Indians and different other ethnic groups that had come here afterward. Um, you know, one big difference that really, really struck me early on um, was the fact that most immigrant groups, uh, I, I had actually just recently written a lot about um, school choice and vouchers and, and parents who are trying to get money for their kids to attend Catholic schools uh, outside of New York uh, or in, 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 in bad neighborhoods in New York. And, you know, so many of these parents would do anything to get their kids into a better school. Ben Chavis had a huge number of empty chairs at his math camp. And similarly, when I went to Catholic schools at Red in um, on the Pine Ridge Reservation and on the Crow Reservation, what I found was even though these schools were outperforming every other school in the area, they actually had all these empty seats in them. And it was like the parents had they they were just kind of unaware of the opportunity there, and they were unaware that their kids could actually do better. And Many of them actually had great trepidation about the idea that their kids would actually leave home. So it was almost kind of the opposite of the immigrant mentality. They had been suffering in this culture of dependency for so long and in such isolation that they were unaware of kind of what the other opportunities were out there. And to me, that was one of the saddest parts of this story. So given the litany of issues that you describe in this book, the natural question is what can be done to turn things around culturally, economically, politic politically and, and beyond. So what would be the antidote or several antidotes in your view to change the plight of Native Americans in this country? Well, I think the easiest area for reform uh, would be actually on the state level. Some of the states that have the largest Indian populations have no charter school laws. And I would love to see a high-performing charter school like a KIPP Academy come into South Dakota and open up just off the reservation. Because I think that giving those kids the kind of access that other kids in this country have to a good education would actually encourage them to take the steps necessary to lead their communities out of this hole that they have been in. Um, and it's much easier, of course, to change, I think, South Dakota state law than our laws about tribal sovereignty and the reservations, uh, you know, which have been sort of written into Supreme Court decisions at this point. Um, but I, So I would start with the educational options, increasing them. But then I do think we also have to look at these questions of tribal justice and, and law enforcement and think seriously about how we can make sure not only that, you know, they're not these overlapping jurisdictions, but ensure that our, that American Indians are being protected. Um, you know, that, you know, you, you've had cases now where the federal government has literally, you know, tried to fire whistleblowers, you know, who have said, 
you know, there's an enormous amount of, you know, child abuse going on on the, on the Spirit Lake Reservation, for instance. Um, and they, the federal officials really want to look the other way. I think they're, it's either out of political correctness or something else. They really just, they don't want to hear about these problems and they don't want to be seen as criticizing the tribal officials. The last thing I really think that we need to consider is something like what First Nations are pursuing in Canada, um, which is called the First Nations Property Ownership Act, which actually gives the title to the underlying plot of land that is a reservation to the tribe, you know, gives it to them, does not hold it in trust for them and pretend that they can't be trusted to do with it what they should. Um, it also allows for individuals to actually own pieces of property, to buy it and sell it to whomever they want, um, to use it for natural resource development. So, you know, as even if the, the land gets sold to somebody else, you know, it's, it's like the city of Boston. Even if you sold land in the city of Boston from one person to another, it would still be part of the city of Boston. And so I think that, you know, there are huge constitutional challenges here and questions about federal law but I really think that we have tried this system for long enough, and its effects are clear, and it's time to try something else. The name of the book is The New Trail of Tears, How Washington is Destroying American Indians. And we've been speaking with its author, Naomi Schaefer-Riley. Naomi, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. Great talking to you. For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway.